heritage, roots, culture? What's the word I'm looking for? Our guest was born to Indian parents, but not in India. She grew up around the world as a diplomat's daughter, and although her parents have since retired back in India, she found home in Chicago, USA. Saranya is Indian, but as you will hear as she shares her story, it's been a lifetime of discovery finding which parts of Indian culture feel most authentic to who she is, especially now that she's a parent and deciding what values and traditions they will embrace as a family, even if she needs to Google all the recipes. Once we get to know Saranya, we will dig into her public life as a content creator, promoting social awareness with a side of kids' books at Toddlers Who Read. Because to understand what she does now, it's best to know where she has been. Let's go ahead and start the conversation. I'm Megan Kitchen, and this is Balancing Cultures. How are you? Good. How are you? Excited to be here. I'm so excited that you said yes. I'm very thrilled because I read um, I read the overview for your podcast and I was like, I've never seen anything that like reads me so, so well. So I'm just really excited to speak. Oh, well, that that like melts my heart actually a little bit, <laughs> because that's one of the things that I was really passionate about when I started this project was having people feel like they're seen or they're heard. Like they can connect with something from within them to the people who are speaking and telling their stories. So, you know what? I'm just going to ask the classic, fully open-ended question to start. And that's, where does your story begin? So I happen to be the daughter of a Indian diplomat. He is now, my dad is now retired. At the time that I was born, my dad was stationed in Moscow, Russia. So that's where I was born. I was I lived there with my family for a year. And then we moved to Copenhagen, Denmark. We were there for about three to four years. And then we moved to India, where we lived in Delhi for approximately two years. I moved with them to Prague, Czech Republic. We were there for about four years. And then Riyadh, Saudi Arabia for four years. I completed my high school in Geneva, Switzerland. And then after that, I decided to come to the U.S. for undergraduate education. But I've been here since then, and it's been great. So um, that's kind of the rundown of, of information that I usually give people when they ask me where what my story is. Do you have like a cheat sheet? Or is this just like stating your name at this point? It's so automatic. It's very automatic. It's kind of like counting the fingers on your hands. Like it's just you could just do it. So yeah, I've repeated this a lot of times during my lifetime, to the point where I know exactly what questions people will next ask me. But you know, it, it's something that I'm both like very passionate about. And I know that it defines my identity, it does become a little like rote at times when I know people are not going to appreciate the, the background that I'm describing to them. It, I mean, it's an interesting life to describe, right? Like it's, to me, it, it sounds really, really interesting and fascinating when you first hear it, because it's something that a lot of people don't have experience with. So when I say, where does your story begin? You say Moscow and you list off all of these countries. But if I were to ask, what is home? What would your answer be? 
I'd have to say Chicago. I mean, I've been here since 2008 um, when I had my first job. Um, it's where I decided to begin my second career. It's where I met my husband. It's where um, I had my son. And, you know, this is where I consider home. I mean, of all the places that I've lived in um, before, they were kind of dictated to me, like in a sense, because uh, my dad just said, hey, we're now going to be posted in XYZ country. And I just kind of went with them. It's not like I had a choice. Um, But, you know, I think home to me, like, I would consider Chicago home, but I also describe home in a different way than most people. To me, home is not like a building. It's not the walls in which you live. It's the people that are around you and kind of the things that you own. Um, And what I mean by that is like, I go and like when I go visit my parents in India right now, they live in a house that I've never actually lived in with them, right? Like I am a guest in their home. The same with my mom, yeah. It's like I've never I've never actually lived with them in their home. And yet I can identify because they have the same art. They have the same like kitchen bowls that, you know, we used to use like <laughs> years ago. And I'm like, oh, this feels like home. OK, I'm just going to settle down over here. This is my new spot, you know. And so it's it's an interesting question because I don't have a home, but it's like home is more of a feeling. So that's a tough question. But I also I I will also note that my husband makes a lot of fun of me when we travel because we stay in hotel rooms for like a day and I'll be like, okay, so when are we going back home? And he has no idea whether I'm referring to the hotel room or like (laughs) home. But that's just how I am. Like I just kind of refer to things as home, like even though they're they're very passing in nature. You know what? I've never had an interview where I feel so seen so quickly. Like the things you're saying, and I didn't grow up around the world, but we moved a lot within the U.S. And when you said, yeah, it was the first place I moved that wasn't dictated to me, I'm like, yes, yes, that's Germany for me. It was the first choice I made for myself. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I I get that. Like I'm having a moment here. (laughs) Yeah. As these homes are being dictated to you, what is it like growing up diplomatic Do you see life as temporary always, every place you go? I think you start to anticipate change and you start to expect change almost. I've gotten to the point where like every like three to four years, I I get this urge to like make a big change in my life. Mm. I've been in Chicago now for, you know, more than 12 years. And the reason that I've been here so long is because it's a vast city where I can move from like neighborhood to neighborhood or change my job or change something. But I start to get that really like antsy feeling in like the three to four year mark. And it's like so fascinating to me because no one told me like that's the magical number, right? So (laughs) I just start getting the itch, like the itch to change something. That's, it's what keeps you motivated, but it's, it's also the feeling that, you carry with you even after you're done with the whole like diplomatic life. Well, you said you met your husband there. And I know just from some of your Instagram posts that you do have a common background, but how much do you have in common and how much can he relate to kind of what you've been through in life? Yeah, so his background is very um, traditional in in a sense. So he grew up in India. His parents live in India. He came here for grad school. So he is very much like solidly established as Indian. And he has a home. His parents have lived there from like when he was a child and they continue living in the same home. So like he has a very strong foundation in his identity. And, you know, to me, like I've always 
kind of gravitated towards Indian people because that's just where I feel like I belong the most. But it's I don't necessarily identify with every aspect of them. It's just like the thing that happens to be closest to who I am. So it's more of like an affinity rather than an identification. But he adopts more of my thinking than I do of his sometimes. So like, you know, we we try to meet in the middle in terms of our of our Indianness. Um, but it, it does help that like, you know, he can speak to my parents in a language that they're comfortable in and so on. So like all of that, I think, removed a lot of obstacles for me in terms of, you know, the person that I married and how they fit into our family. That's interesting that, you know, you've got this commonality of kind of a root culture, the Indian culture. But if we look at the other kind of aspects of your life in terms of family culture, very different experiences. Mm -hmm. Have you had to balance that in your home and how you manage what home means to you there in Chicago? Um, Yes and no. Like, I think, um, you know, we kind of just do what I feel comfortable with and Um, in terms of adopting Indian culture. Mm -hmm. But in terms of like establishing our home, I think both of us are kind of the people that are okay with the change like every three to five years or so. So that's been good for me. Like if I met someone who was very much, this is our home for the next 20 years, I would feel very like suffocated. Mm. So in that way, I happen to have met someone who, although their upbringing is very different from mine, is very accommodating in my need for moving around, even if it's within the same city. And as someone who grew up around the world experiencing all different types of cultures, and at least I hope you got to engage with some of those cultures in those years that you got to be there, you then moved to the U.S. and you've been there, you said, over you've been in Chicago over 12 years. What was it like kind of settling into one culture for so long, specifically American culture? Yeah, I mean, this one is kind of interesting to me. And I I think about this a lot. But um, I went to international schools growing up, and a lot of them happened to be American international schools. So um, my teachers were mostly from the US or they were Canadian. So I always felt like I had that tie to the US, like even if I didn't there and there were pop culture references that perhaps I recognized some that I didn't as a as a side effect of not having been there like I got like 30% of the pop culture references you know I also went to I specifically chose an undergrad that school that represented a lot of countries and was more international in nature because that's what I wanted so I would say my introduction to the U.S. was was kind of like it wasn't it wasn't as shocking as I would have expected it to be. It was more tempered in the sense that I came here and then the students who were around me in undergrad were much like me in a lot of ways. Like a lot of them had moved from a different country and had come to attend school there. I mean, yes, while they had not also grown up in different countries before they had got there, you know, all of us shared the similarity that like we might have left our families to come and study in this university. And that enabled me to relate to them a lot more than if I had gone to some school where a lot of people were like, you know, going home on the weekends to visit their family or like they had never left the confines of the state that they grew up in or whatever. So um, I was very intentional about the school that I chose and that had a large uh, international population. And I think that really helped my assimilation into into coming to the U.S. Was it assimilation for you? 
I think so. I mean, a lot of the friends that I, that I had initially when I came to the U.S. were like from all over the place. I think all of us felt a little bit out of place. But sooner or later, I think you have to assimilate yourself into a society that's broader than your college or university. So I think that was that was the biggest change for me. Yeah. And do you feel that in the years that have passed that you have assimilated more or do you still reach back to some of your foundation culture where your parents live in India or some of the other things you experienced around the world to kind of grasp at those other ideals or values or traditions? I mean, they definitely shape who I am today. I don't think that I can act like I grew up here my entire life although it sounds like it sometimes. <laughs> I was going to say the accent is convincing. Right. Um, it convinces most people or it confuses most people. But I think the value system is, is something that is very close to being Indian for me because both of my parents are people that grew up their entire childhoods in India. So they kind of informed um, and passed on their South Asian values to me. And I passed them on in some misshapen way, I guess, to, to my son. I think coming here and being here for almost like 20 years or so um, since since the time that I came here has changed who I am, but it doesn't necessarily erase all of the experiences that I've had before I got here. Yeah. I mean, we change as we age regardless. Mm -hmm. And our environment is 100% going to have an impact on how those changes manifest themselves, we could say, if we want to use big words. Yeah. So yeah, I think a lot of people go, oh, you've changed. And it's like, well, we've all changed, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I agree. I mean, we, one would hope that you would change, right? I mean, now I'm like 30 years old. Um, I would hope that I've changed since I was a teenager. You also have this added balancing challenge now that you have an American-born, American citizen son. Mm -hmm. You have the first challenge of just being a parent. So welcome to the club, because that's <laughs> fun. <laughs> and then you've got the same thing I've got, where we've got these multicultural kids. You know, my husband's Finnish. I'm American. We're living in Germany. You and your husband have Indian heritage, but you grew up around the world and you're living in America. How do you help include balancing cultures in his heritage as you're raising him? I mean, I, I wish I had a solution, right? So this is something that I struggle with constantly because it's something that I struggle with constantly for myself. Yeah. In my daily life, I try to figure out what I do to keep Indianness within me because to me, being Indian is not like one thing over the other. It's not like, oh, if you don't eat Indian food, that then you're not Indian. Like I look Indian. I'm going to be Indian for the rest of my life, regardless of what citizenship I hold, right? Um, it's kind of like written on my face, literally. So um, there's not a whole lot I can do about that. It's not defined by, you know, what religious practices I follow or what food I eat or what music I like. Like, it's just something that's within me. So then it's really hard to translate that to a kid because I am so like amorphously Indian that I need, I need to put some structure around it for him. And that's my challenge. One of the other challenges that I've that I faced myself is over time, I've kind of let go of the religious aspects of things. Um, and so I would consider myself an atheist right now. And so I found, found it hard to separate Indian culture from religion. 
And mm-hmm. so how do I pass on culture without implicating religion in, in the process of doing that? So that's my, that's my biggest um, struggle. Language wise, I think we communicate in English, but we try to like use a few um, Tamil words, which is what we speak at home with our parents um, here and there. But I mean, we haven't done, it's not like he's, he's going to be raised bilingual because it's not the language in which I communicate with my husband, even though we both speak the language. So the reality to set in here, ideally, in an ideal world, I would love for him to be able to communicate in English and in Tamil. But realistically, the way that that's going to happen is if my husband and I both communicate with him in Tamil and we talk to each other in Tamil. Is that going to happen? Probably not. So he's going to pick up on a few words here and there, and we're probably going to be okay with it. On the weekends, we try to cook Indian food and kind of expose him to different things that we enjoy. But I think we just want to kind of make him realize that his family comes from a different different place from here and that his culture and his roots are a lot deeper than just Chicago, right? Because that's mm. all he knows. It's about expanding his vocabulary to include the foods that we eat and the music that we enjoy and the places that we go. And lastly, it's just maintaining a tie to our family. So to me, it's it's hard for me to wrap my head around what exactly, like what aspect of culture exactly I'm trying to pass on to him. But I'm just trying to make it make it seem like, you know, he appreciates the the origins of his family. So your parents and your husband's parents, are they both from Tamil Nadu? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. My parents are retired there in Delhi right now. But um, yeah, originally they are. Interesting. So at least that's a common ground as well, because he could have been from anywhere. Oh, for sure. You know, at least you've got that, a common language, a lot of common cultural ties specific to to Southern India. So that's very interesting. Yeah. Within Chicago, is there a Tamil or an Indian community that you can link up with and socialize with outside of pandemic times? <laughs> I was going to say it's become a little bit challenging to do that. Right. But I mean, I think, yes, uh, going back to our what I said earlier about trying to remove the religious aspect from it, I think a lot of Indian culture um, or Indian communities here revolve around your faith. So like you go to the temple, you eat, you know, our, the temple happens to be like of a South Asian inspired temple. And so we feel at home there, but at the same time, that's bringing the religious component of it in. So we don't go there very often because I don't really, it's not the way that I identify to India. So, I mean, we, we try to do those things and we try to do them as best as we can. And it's, it's better than nothing, I suppose, but it's just, it's just not very reflective of who I am. So I find it a little bit challenging in, in that way. We have some family that lives close by, so that that helps a little bit with with bringing in culture. But yeah, I mean, I, there are communities, but I don't think that there's a large South Indian community or a Tamilian community. So mm-hmm. there, there are other larger Indian communities um, that we're kind of in and out of. But it's, it's hard to find that South Indian community that you can actually relate to. Yeah. It sounds like through kind of your answers that you're giving, before you can help, you can really help him balance his cultures and his identity that you're trying to figure out yourself. 
And by parenting him, it's like with every step of the way as he's getting older and you're like, okay, and I want to expose you to this, but how do I feel about that? And how do I connect with that? Is that fair to say? Oh, like 100% yes. So <laughs> I'll, give you, I'll give you like an anecdote. So like two weeks ago, I think, um, or maybe three, we were trying to celebrate Bongal at home because I, I wanted him to understand that there is this festival that um, Thumbelians celebrate and it cel- signifies the new year. But I'm like, man, I've never made Bongal before at home. I don't know how to do this. So I looked up the recipe and, you know, I was learning while I was trying to teach this <laughs> what this festival was. And, you know, I'm on the phone with my mom, like, how do I, how do I do this? You know, what do I put in it? What do I need to get? And so it was, it's, it's comical because that happens over and over again. Like when we celebrate Diwali at home, I'm like just as clueless as he is, but, you know, obviously as an adult, we can have a lot more resources at hand to educate ourselves. And I have my parents and whatever, but in preparation for this the call, I was actually thinking about how my mom must have felt the same way. So she was probably like stranded in like the middle of Europe somewhere without really any family close by. And like when we were celebrating these big festivals that are relevant to our culture, um, she didn't really have a lot of Indian people or a lot of family nearby. So she was kind of just doing whatever she remembered from what her mom said, or like what, you know, she read in a magazine or something. And then I learned whatever half lessons that she learned and so now we're at like you know an eighth of whatever the culture represents so we're like you know this is how this is how things get diluted and I'm really trying to not do that but I think I just realized that like my mom was in a similar situation when we were growing up to what I'm trying to do now but um we're definitely trying to like resurrect this thing and and do it the right way and the sad thing is she didn't have google correct yeah so it was probably even harder. I'm just here watching YouTube videos and like looking at recipes online. Like, yeah, we could we can make this happen. Come on, Ishan. Like, we just have, have to mix some doll together. We got this, you know, and we'll print out some colorable sheets. I, I have to know, were they happy when you found your husband and they knew that you would be connected in, in even more ways? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, when my parents found out that he could speak Tamil, they were just like overjoyed. So, <laughs> so it's, it's great. Like, you know, you can connect. They, they obviously they speak English and they're, they, you know, all of that, all of that is, is still applicable. But there's, there's a feeling of home that comes with finding someone who shares the language that you speak. And so they, they really, really, really appreciate that. Yeah. In an interview I just did with a Canadian woman who's married to a Cambodian guy, she talked about how he seems to have like a more open and genuine personality in his mother tongue than in English. So when he can speak his mother tongue, it's like a different side of him comes out and he can really fully be himself. <laughs> I saw I saw a meme the other day where it says when you really get angry you channel your mother tongue. I mean it's kind of like that, right? Like when you yeah. let out your authentic self, you're like you're let out your rage and your passion in your mother tongue. Yeah. Oh yeah, my husband and I were doing taxes this morning and he was counting and finished and I was like, I'm <laughs> gonna give him some space. <laughs> <laughs> Walk away slowly. <laughs> Well, that is kind of the woman behind the Instagram account. Yeah. And we didn't even like fully dig in, but that was good. 
So I think it's time we start talking about the balancing you're now doing in the public eye. Yep. As a career, you are a patent lawyer, a former engineer. Like, just applause for that. (laughs) Just chip away at that glass ceiling just a little bit. But you've also started this Instagram account called Toddlers Who Read. And I'll put that in the show notes for everyone so it's all linked up. You don't have to remember it. My question is, what made you want to share not just the stories you love? So it started with your son and the books you're reading, but you're also sharing parts of your own story with the public. Yeah, so I guess I'll I'll address the latter part of that because, I mean, sharing books, anyone can share books, right? But it's about, to me, it's about the choice of of the books and what compels you to read certain books over the other ones. And I think our background and where we come from truly informs what choices that we make for our children. Like, for example, start off with, you know, what food they eat in a day. And so book choices are very similar. So I share my story and my story um, involves little clips of Ishan doing ridiculous things in a day. And (laughs) all of that kind of informs when we go to the library, what books are we picking up? Um, And I also share our story because I want to tell people that, you know, I, I am a working mom. I have a challenging job as a professional and as a lawyer, and I have a young kid, and it's still possible to make time for a regular reading routine. It's also still possible to pick out books that both your kids and you enjoy. And those books are reflective of people who are not just exactly like you. Um, I can I can tell you personally, I mean, none of these books are reflective of me because I'm just like, you know, an oddball of a person who grew up all over the place. But I would hope that at least some of these books are reflective of Ishan, um, but also his friends. Like I want him to read stories that are about different types of people, especially now with COVID where he's meeting fewer and fewer people. I want him to know that there are there are lives being lived outside the the four walls of our home. And so I think all of that kind of paints a larger picture and provides more perspective to what we're what we're talking about, which ultimately comes down to kids books. But kids books are not as trivial as one may one may think, right? Like when you start off with you're just like, oh, well, this book is for kids, I'll just read this to my kid. But it's not that simple. Oh, no, it's not that simple. Actually, one of my very first episodes I did was called Why Should We Care About Kids Books? Oh. Yeah, I did it with my friend Anne, who was an English teacher for years and then worked for a a nonprofit. We dug into, yeah, the importance of the content that we are providing our children. And we compared it to the 80s and the content we were consuming Mm -hmm. and how much better it is now. And then, of course, we went off on a lot of different tangents. So (laughs) I'll put that in the show notes as well. But I 100% agree that kids' books are not trivial. And it is a foundation that we're giving our kids. So I think it's really important what we show them. Yeah. Well, what, what type of content do you like to create? Why is it important to you to be putting this out there for other people to see? I want to make content that makes people happy and makes people inspired. I'm I'm not here to put myself in a pedestal and say, hey, look, I'm the mom that everyone you should all aspire to be. What I'm trying to say is that everyone is in this struggle of parenting together and we're trying to raise this next generations of humans to be um, a little bit better than we were. Um, so um, how do we achieve that with the busy lives that surround us? How do we create and 
foster the kind of like little people basically that everyone wants to be around when they grow up. Realistically, these people, these kids are going to grow up and they're going to form our society and our communities 20, 30 years down the line. So what I like to create is a balance between talking about the actual books and then the background behind it. So what I, I like to describe it as like the who, what, when, where, why, how behind the books, right? So like the what is obviously the books, but then you read about, you know, what Ishan likes to do in his free time or like what I like to do in my free time. Or let me just go off on a rant about some random thing that frustrated me last week. Like, so all of these things build us as people. And so I think they, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier, it informs not only our book choices, but the way that I envision him growing up as a kid. And I love seeing like messages from other moms that say, hey, like, you know, I didn't really think that reading was so important, or I didn't really see how I would have been able to incorporate reading into my routine. But seeing that you guys are doing this day over day over day, and I'm sitting here like exhaustingly posting book stacks, like morning day, like morning, evening and night, it reminds people that this is important. Hmm. And that, that's my goal, to remind people that reading to your kids is an important chunk of time, whether it's 10 minutes or whether it's 45 minutes. It's an important chunk of quality time that everyone should be carving out of their day. And, you know, it's exhausting because you're like, okay, that you're in this robotic autopilot kind of mode. So I think my account hopefully conveys the message that what you are doing is really impactful for your children. The conversations that you're having around these books are really impactful for your children. Keep going. Keep doing it. I noticed that you have the hashtag South Asians for Black Lives on your profile. Do you think that as a content creator, it's important for you to use your platform to support social justice and or do you think it's particularly important to encourage parents and kids to have this exposure to these issues or topics that maybe when we were kids, we thought were difficult topics? Yeah, I mean, I'll address the first part of that first. And I appreciate that you called it content creator rather than the more abstract influencer term, because I feel like a lot of people draw a line in the sand when it comes to what number of followers constitutes an influencer versus, oh, I'm just a I'm just a mom who's blogging. There's no such distinction. If you have more than like 10 people following you, you are now influencing the lives of others. And while, you know, I can sit here and influence the lives of others to buy books about bunnies and ladybugs and pandas, um, and people would probably listen and buy those books, or I could, you know, influence them in terms of, you know, what kind of dump trucks to buy next month. If I have the power to do that to at least one person, then it is now my like civic responsibility to influence that person to also make choices that are beneficial to our community and not just for people who are like them, for people who are around them. Mm. And so this doesn't, I'm not advocating for people to like go and protest out in the streets. Like if that's your, that's your way of bringing racial justice, that's that's truly appreciated because that's how we're making moves. But at the same time, if you have this platform, you have a voice, you have followers, you know, if you have more than 10 followers or whatever, whatever number you want to put around it, um, take a stance. When you take a stance, it enables other people to feel comfortable to take a stance. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to get on, like get 
trying to convey here by South Asians for Black Lives is it was it would have been really easy for me to remove that hashtag at the end of you know what would have been called the Black Lives Matter movement. Probably people would have ended that last year, but I've purposely kept it on there because this is a fight that we need to continue fighting. And I'm not some like pro bono attorney who's fighting for the lives of people in the background or anything. I'm not like any sort of savior. This is, that's not, that's not the point of this. The point is, you know, we have little humans that live in our house. And if you don't, if you don't consider yourself to be in a position where you can influence the lives of the larger community, at least do it at home. Hmm. And so we have, as parents, we have a huge, huge responsibility to raise the next generation so that they are not like us. With that, what are some of the topics that you've enjoyed or found important to highlight in your content? To me, it's all about fun when it comes to reading. So topics that I like highlighting are, you know, appreciating other people for who they are, building empathy. And I just think like books bring you joy. So I will keep posting books <laughs> and then posting content that relates to books because I will I will find a way to link every single rant that I have to go on and relate it to kids' books. Like that is my goal. Well, let's go ahead and talk about one of your most recent rants, shall we? (laughs) Sure. And it's the one where you talk about the pronunciation of names. Do you want to let listeners know what event led you to have your rant post and why you felt it so important to make a public statement? Yeah, of course. So this all came about as a result of the inauguration ceremony. And, you know, before I before I get into my rant, I will just say I am thrilled that we have Kamala Harris now as our VP. She is now the first black person um, and first South Asian to be the vice president of our country. Extremely, extremely proud that she's here here in that situation. But at the same time, we also need to appreciate all parts of her. We can't just applaud her for being the first Black and first South Asian person to be there. We also have to appreciate simple things like being able to say her name. And so when she gets to the inauguration ceremony, Justice Sotomayor is in charge of um, administering the oath for her to take office. And she pronounces her name as Kamala Harris. And when Vice President Harris repeats the oath, she says, very, you can see the smirk on her face, she says, Kamala Harris, and then like repeats the rest of the quote. And in that moment, I, I had like this flashback to all of the different ceremonies in which my name has been said out loud, and all of the law school classes and the Socratic method where like your name has been called out. And in all those moments, you always think that you've achieved this great thing in your life. And yet someone can just come and diminish it in like second by saying your name wrong. It's very simple, right? Like it doesn't take that much time or effort to learn how to say someone's name correctly. And also, you know, she's the vice president of our country. It just made me feel like, oh, well, if people can't be bothered to say her name, why would they be bothered to learn mine? So, you know, if there are 500 kids graduating from a from a ceremony, it's easy enough for the person who's administ- administering the, the graduation ceremony to say, well, I had a lot of late names to learn. So, you know, so what? I let 
a couple of them slide. No big deal, right? But here we were literally one person was administering the oath of one person. That one person did not learn care to learn the name of the other person. It was the sole responsibility. And so if that ends up poorly, what does that what message does that send to all those other people who are, you know, saying your name in work meetings or when they see you in the grocery store? I don't know what, but you know, over years and years of having your name said incorrectly every time, you just grow extremely tired and then you stop correcting people. And my post was directed at people whose names were also said incorrectly over a large period of time. And to tell them that we, it's, you know, we need to put the burden back on the people who are saying the names. I, I got a lot of excuses on behalf of Justice Sotomayor when I initially posted it on the day of the inauguration. And, you know, I thought about it for a few days and thought about whether I was overreacting to the events of that day. And then I was like, you know, you know what, actually, I'm not. Because if people think that I'm overreacting over something so basic, then if it's so basic, then go learn how to say her name. Hmm. It's literally your identity, right? Like you grew, like your parents gave you this name. And this is the this is the first thing that people learn about you. And now that we are parents, and we know the process of picking out a name, which is not easy. You mull over that a long, long time. Mm -hmm. If you think like, her parents picked this name for her. They really thought about it. And then she's, you know, really made it in life to this position where she should have the utmost respect. And her parents are like, yes, she's finally, oh, they said her name wrong. Imagine how that makes them feel. On top of how it makes her feel. Yeah. And it's like she has to, quote unquote, have a sense of humor about it. Yeah. I mean, we expect her to laugh it off. Yeah. Like, that's the expectation is she should be okay with it. Uh-huh. But why? She shouldn't be. That's so frustrating. I just, I didn't even think about it from the parent perspective until we started talking about it. It's like, yeah, like, your name is your name. Your parents picked that for a reason. Mm-hmm. She's achieved this because of the, of the numerous merits that she's achieved in her life. And she deserves to be here as much as someone who would have a more you know, Anglican name. Sally. Yep, Sally. I have to say, so an episode that just went out, it's an ex-student of mine. So she's an international school student. And the whole time we're doing the interview and in my intro and outro, which I record separately, I call her Anna. Because that's what I always called her at school. We were in speech and debate together. I was her coach. We spent a lot of time. We traveled to other international schools together. We took flights together. I have always called her Anna. And then it wasn't until I was listening back to the tapes, the tapes, like we listen to tapes, the recording, (laughs) and I emailed her with an apology. I said, I am so sorry. It took me like 10 years. And I just realized I've always said your name with an American accent. And you are German. Your name is not Anna. You're Anna. Right. And she wrote back, she's like, no problem. You know, my parents are used to it. And I was like, I want you to tell them specifically from me, I apologize because I would never do that on purpose. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. anyone who's, when you guys hear this episode, please go back to that episode and know that I am wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate 
there's this undercurrent of, you know, someone being or looking different from your Sally, your hypothetical Sally, and automatically people assuming that they won't be able to say that person's name. Mm. That problem, right? Like Kamala's name is particularly difficult. That's not the issue here. It's that our attitude is, well, she looks different from me. So her name must be hard. So, and it's something, something that I haven't heard before. So therefore I'm just going to say it wrong and that's okay. I'm just going to laugh it off. That's not okay. And this is not the message that we should be sending to our kids either. So it's challenging. It is challenging. Do you think now that books were getting a lot more diversity in the characters, so the color of their skin, the type of hair they have, all those things, but also we're getting diversity in the names of the characters. Do you think that's going to help our kids be more open to, what do I want to say? Yeah, let's just say open. Well, Do you think our kids will be more open? Yeah, it's about being open to listening, right? It's not, it's not that they've heard every name that there exists in the world. That's not the expectation because people's names are going to change. They're going to evolve. People are going to come up with new crafty creative names. Um, all that is fine. The, the issue is our kids are going to be more attuned to listening because they're not going to expect names that conform to a certain template. Mm-hmm. And so importantly, in these books that have, you know, non-Anglican names, I suppose, we need to also teach the parents who are reading these books out loud how to say the names. And we should include pronunciation guides for all names so that we don't just assume that certain names are hard to pronounce for some people, right? Like this is how you begin othering. Our, our work email signature now allows us to put in pronunciation guides for our names. Everyone should be doing that, even if your name is, you know, Sally. Yeah. <laughs> because if only I put it in, then I'm just admitting to somebody else that my name is more difficult to say than your name, except it's the same number of syllables. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask about that because that's the thing. I was just talking to another friend about, you know, when we italicize things in books because we assume it's a foreign word. Mm-hmm. And if, you know, some of us put pronunciation guides for our names, but it's not standard across everyone, it's like, oh, okay, if they have a pronunciation guide for their name, it means it's difficult. It means it's different. Yep. Yeah, it's all subtle messages, right? <laughs> like we're not, yeah. we're, we're trying to do better and we're getting there. The problem is if only some people do it, then that person is inherently telling you, hey, I think my name is going to be a little bit challenging for you. Let me help you out. Yeah. And that burden is now shifted to that person to telling you what their name is. Yeah. Even when my husband is speaking Finnish with the kids and my kids try to say something back, my husband used to have the habit of saying in Finnish to them, oh, yes, it's difficult. Like, that's a difficult. And I said, don't put that in their head. Mm. Don't tell them what is and is not difficult. You just repeat yourself. You help them yeah. learn. Yeah. <laughs> that's difficult in English, right? Yeah. Have you Squirrel. That's ridiculous. <laughs> Oddly, kids try to say squirrel when they're like 11, 12 months old, and it's the cutest thing. It's so funny. My daughter was trying to say 12 today in English and in German. We were <laughs> counting in German and zwölf in German, and she's like trying to wrap her mouth around the umlaut, and it just, it was so cute. Oh, there you go. I have to tell you, I told my closest mom friends that I was interviewing you, and one of them would love to know. So this is like a, a crowdsourced question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
She would love to know, how do you approach reading these books with your son? Do you just straightforward read through it? Do you ask leading questions to help have those more in-depth conversations? What do you, how do you approach this? Yeah, I mean, I'm a lawyer, so I, you know, ask leading and non-leading questions, kind of throw them in there. Um, But I think, you know, the first time you read a book that has a a heavier subject line than a bunny went to school, um, you tend to read it a little bit slower and kind of watch their reactions. And when you get to a word that they might not understand, um, pause and try to understand if they they know what that word means, try to define it for them. Um, but then also like try to relate, relate the story to something they would understand, right? So the idea here behind reading these types of books that cover race and racism and people with disabilities and so on, the idea here is to create empathy. It's not a feeling of, oh, I feel so bad for that person. It's just to understand what that person might be going through. And, you know, concepts that kids understand are like right and wrong, fair and unfair. This is bad. That person was not being nice. Like this is my my son's favorite sentiment is that person is not filling the other guy's bucket. Oh, And so these are concepts that kids understand. Like kids really understand things that are black and white. Like this is this is good. Like this is not so good. And so if you tie it to real world examples, they remember it more. So sometimes we'll read a book where someone is judged for the color of their skin and their friend stands up for them, for example. We w- I would give him a scenario and say, okay, so say, Sean, like this were to happen to you in school, what would you say on behalf of your friend? And we would come up with a few lines that he could say if you know he were, he were standing up or acting as an ally for his friend. Um, I'll give you an example. So we were reading... Um, bling blaine the other day and it's about this kid who loves sparkles it's a boy who loves sparkles and so he gets bullied at school because he loves sparkles and basically putting glitz on everything which i think is amazing amazing john is also the same way like he's like oh glitter okay let me put it on all the things (laughs) (laughs) so when is when he gets bullied at school the kid himself kind of shuts off and stops putting, you know, all these shiny things on on his clothes and his backpack and whatever. But his friends step in and they try to explain to the people who don't understand this kid's viewpoint of liking something that is not stereotypically associated with that person's with that kid's gender. They try to explain to that person, well, you know, Blaine likes bling just like I like high top shoes, just like I like hoodies. And so it teaches kids that like, You know, even if it's not something that is happening to you, you as a friend can do something about it. So when we as we were reading that story, I said, okay, well, let's say, Ishan, that like somebody was making fun of your friend for, you know, liking glitter too much or something like that. And so we practiced a few lines that he could say. He gave me some and then we tweak them and so on. So, you know, I think those are ways in which you can get kids to really internalize what they're reading. But I mean, I think at the end of the day, you have to frame the discussion in language that they will understand, right? Like if we're reading like Dr. Martin Luther King's speech to them, it's not really going to be as impactful as telling them a story about how someone was judged or experienced racism or, you know, was told that they they were not allowed to do something purely on the basis of their skin color. 
Like these are things that they understand by having them recite the speech. That's not, that's not moving the needle. So the reason why these picture books exist is so that they can convey a story and our job as parents is to kind of bring that story alive for them. Like make sure that you're depicting that these kids are real life kids. If, when you're reading these stories, I always stop and pause at the end of the, uh, pause at the end of the page and make sure that he's following me. And then he'll, he's processing. So he's asking questions of his own. And the second time you read the book, like you'll read it a little bit faster and faster, but he'll have new, more like deeper discussion topics or whatever from the book. So, I mean, I think, yeah, you bring up a good point that it's not enough to just have the book and then read the book. It's also what you're doing kind of alongside reading the book. And that includes while you're reading the book, but that also includes things that happen, you know, outside of your of your reading time. Yeah. I mean, I'm I love books and I'm also a teacher. So it comes naturally for me that when we're moving around the world and oh, the world, our little world, which is four walls in a car <laughs> right now. But, you know, when we were driving around yesterday and he starts talking about the puddles and the snow melting, well, boom, we had a conversation about the water cycle. Yep. He's four, but he gets it. And then we started talking about solids versus liquids. Today on his um, school platform e-learning thing, the word of the day, because it's Friday and it's fun, was donut. And I said, well, what's a donut? And he goes, a solid. Nice. But what I'm what I think I'm trying to say with that example is, you know, that's not racism, but it's still a big topic. You know, it's water cycle. That's science. He got it. You know, and if we just treat a lot of these topics like these are things you need to learn, like science, like math, you need to learn about the differences that are out in the world. You're right. It's not like an extraneous topic that we're going to have to spend extra effort to teach them. It's just part of things that they need to learn as three or four year olds, right? Yeah. And things that they're going to encounter anyway. So we can choose to ignore it, or we can get in front of it and actually explain these things to them. Just like, you know, if you don't teach your kid counting, they're going to have to learn, they're going to learn counting from somewhere, right? Yeah. Um, if you don't teach your kid to read, that's totally fine. But what one day they're going to go to school and learn how to read, whether you like it or not. It's just one of those things that like is based on natural progression is going to happen. So you can choose to frame that discussion in a way that your kid understands, because at the end of the day, like teachers, teachers, you know, are dealing with several kids at once. Parents, we know our kids the best. We know how to convey information um, in a way that they will understand. On top of it, like we happen to be brown ourselves. So then I have to explain to him the differences between like being brown and black and, you know, other skin colors. And so it becomes a larger conversation. His teacher, who is not brown or black, may explain it in a different way than I do. So it just gives you a different lens to experience these different issues. But I think what it comes down to is, you know, saying that, you know, your kid is too young to understand the periodic table or the states of matter or the water cycle, I think is just an excuse, right? Like, it's just about like, bringing it down to their level. And, you know, relating, relating this to my job as a patent litigator, and I litigate in the high tech space, nobody understands what I actually do, right? So I pick up a, I pick up a patent, and I'm like trying to defend our client 
the patent is about like some obscure technical concept that I barely understand, much less a jury who on average has an eighth grade education will understand. But we need to like distill the information down to the bits that actually matter and convey that information to the jury. This is very much like what we are doing for our children, right? You're taking this very large, expansive subject matter, very heavy topic, and making it like distilling it down into chunks that they can process and apply to their daily lives. Yes. I'm just going to end that with applause. <laughs> that was fantastic. And, you know, it, it does remind me of the conversation I had with my friend Anne in episode four when we talked about why, why should we care about kids' books? Mm-hmm. And one of the things you just said made me think about this, and it's getting ahead of the conversations. And we know our kids best, so we know when maybe these things are going to be coming up. You know, she gave a very simple example of losing a tooth. Wouldn't you rather have the conversation about the fact that their teeth are going to fall out before the teeth fall out? (laughs) So that they know something is coming? I think it's the same with, you know, you talking to your son about race. Yep. He will, at some point in his life, living in America with brown skin, encounter racism. So have the conversation now. Yeah. And we're not having the conversation for the record because he's brown. We're just having it because other people will experience racism and he needs to know that it it exists. Whether it applies to him or not is a separate question. Thank you for that clarity. I agree. Because I'm, you know, we've got diverse characters in our books now because I've been so inspired by all the conversations I'm having with people and beautiful bookstagram accounts like yours. And it's lovely to see how my kids are starting to recognize that there are differences, but also for like my two-year-old daughter, the fact that she does not recognize differences sometimes. (laughs) You know, it opens up conversations if you allow it to. Exactly. Exactly. Let me have one closing question after all of this amazing conversation. I'm really like, this is awesome. This gives me life to have conversations like this. So. Has your life of balancing cultures been one of the reasons you're inspired now to help others balance with books? That's a heavy question to end with. Um, but welcome. <laughs> I have to say yes, right? Because what other answer is there? But- I mean, you could say no and we could just end it. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a not, not so great end to, the, to our lovely conversation. But I mean, I think my, my life is very inspired by multiculturalism. Like when I, when I went to school at all these international schools that I went to, I had kids of all different skin colors, all different like, or like national origins. People had lived in one place for all of their lives. Other people moved every two to three years, but some people have different family structures just ran the gamut in terms of who these kids were in my class. And yet none of it really seemed to matter. And so when I came here to the US, I finally realized that like this alternate reality that I was living in as the child of a diplomat is not really reflective of like the real reality that everyone else lives in. And so I'm kind of trying to create through the world of books, that same utopia that I grew up in. And so it's a little bit fanciful, but it's trying to get everyone to the place where we can realize that it is possible. It is possible to live in that place where people are treated equally and we can set aside biases and so on. 
And so hopefully our kids being exposed to all this stuff when they're when they're early on in their lives will make a huge difference. And we will see in 10 or 15, 20 years um, that we were raising a, a generation that is not impacted by the same biases that we had growing up. That's the goal. Yeah, that is the goal. A big thank you to Saranya for sharing her story. I know she is not the only one out there who is balancing the cultures she's inherited to create the best life for who she is. And a big thank you to all content creators who help us challenge our thinking of where we've come from and how we can move forward, helping the kids in our lives be more informed, more empathetic, and more equipped for the future. Thank you for listening. This was Balancing Cultures, and I'm Megan Kitchen. <laughs>